as we continue our journey through the Bhagavad Gita, as we walk hand in hand with Krishna and Arjuna. Let's see now where we stand, where we've come so far, having learned all these different ways to act, to engage, to perform our duties. Krishna has brought us now to the point of understanding not just outwardly, but more essentially inwardly through the practice of yoga, in this particular case, meditation. And as he says, those techniques given to you by your guru, the way Yogananda put it, guru-given meditation. So whatever that may mean for you, we established in our last class some very basic requisites of our posture, of the concentration, of how we are seated, of the attitude in which we enter into our meditation being that to seek only that highest, to seek only me, the way Krishna says, me in that infinite spirit. And now we find ourselves on verse 15 of the sixth chapter, where Krishna continues, the self-governed yogi, his mind fully controlled, attains the peace of supreme nirvana, the state of individual extinction in union with my spirit. When he says once you set that true and ultimate goal, it may take its time and <laughs> most of us know that it'll take its time, but once we set ourselves on that particular path, not wavering from it even for a moment, not always getting where we need to, but self-governed yogi, which is the yogi who has at least all his own energy under his control, begins to start to move that energy both in meditation and outwardly with singular purpose. And of course, the mind then becomes falls under our control as well and we achieve that state of supreme nirvana. Nirvana of course is without form is what it means in which we lose, where Swamiji has put it here, is the state of individual extinction which is the separateness that we have identified ourselves with. It disappears. However, Paramahansa Yogananda makes a very um, interesting distinction here. When he talks about individuality, he says, in creation itself, in the form of Divine Mother, every atom is endowed with individuality. As in, there's always this idea that, you know, when becoming one with the infinite spirit is essentially the cessation of self or it's like everything that I am is just going to go away or you know what I, what's the point of living if I'm essentially going to get my state myself to a state of almost you can say death you know where there's just nothing in me anymore that exists but Paramahansa Yogananda made this distinction saying that even when we unite ourselves with the divine even though the separateness uh, completely dissolves the awareness of that original individuality because this individuality was endowed from the very beginning of creation every unit of consciousness though one infinite consciousness yet holds its own unique 
expression even of consciousness the way uh, yogananda calls that final goal he calls it satchitananda which of course is a common understanding but he defines satchitananda by adding this extra word which is ever existing ever conscious which is standard ever new bliss and he said that new is important because sometimes we've all experienced what happiness feels right right um say you really love um eating grapes for example you know you've had grapes and you get your fill and it feels really good and then the next day somebody gets you grapes again and you have your fill and it feels really good and the third day somebody brings you grapes and you have your fill and you're like okay you know i'm starting to get to my happiness ceiling and that sometimes becomes like okay you know there's just oh that i'm just relaxing on the beach after a while that gets happiness can easily kind of deviate into boredom and so when we're achieving this state of unity with god this is not that kind of you know um what's the stagnant state of happiness as yogananda puts it it's ever new and it's ever new because every experience of god through us through every atom through all creation is in itself ever new and that's what we will experience and that is why yogananda said the saints even though they've merged with god when they return to continue their god given mission they hold on to that entire they remember every incarnation they've been paramahansa yogananda made the startling statement saying i remember my incarnation even as a diamond so from that very unit of consciousness that entire evolution imagine from that mineral state how to move through the entire plant kingdom animal kingdom every possible creature all the way to the human state and then multiple lifetimes of the human experience until paramahansa yogananda achieved his freedom and then continued to return even after that that entire stream of memory of of experience of awareness remains and so even though there is that nirvana where the separation where the wave kind of merges back into the ocean but that consciousness that was the wave still continues to experience itself in that ever newness of bliss and that's such a uh, it just makes my heart swell up with so much joy just to do that that even though shurjo in itself is such a limited identity but shurjo in his highest experience is also a unique expression of god and will continue to remain a unique expression of god or juna yoga is not for him who eats too much or who fasts too much who sleeps too much or who sleeps too little now this is an an interesting statement because on one hand you know it's all about curbing our desires and so if i'm you know if i'm tend to eat a lot then i'm going to need to start eating less and there's a lot of there's a great sense of renunciation krishna himself spoke about renunciation as the highest form of wisdom where you let go of absolutely everything and you are going to have to live a very in a certain sense austere life yet here he comes and he starts talking about that the yogi isn't one who eats too much or fasts too much sleeps too much or sleeps too little so there's several layers here to this statement it's a very loaded statement 
And the first layer, of course, is yoga itself is of the central reality where duality merges into one. And so what for us as an outward expression represents that central reality and that is moderation. Where we're just, you see, because if I define myself by either, whether I eat too much or I eat too little, both of them have an equal influence over my life as an identification. But if I'm not even interested in food, then it's like, I just eat as much as I'm as needed. You know, it's not even a thing where I have to concern myself with, am I on one end or the other? Do I sleep too much or do I, and I'm so proud of the fact that I just need two hours of sleep or three hours of sleep. But to the yogi who recognizes neither extreme really matters, says, I sleep just as much as needed. There was a saint that, who passed away, who's from the Kriya Yoga tradition, also a disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda, Swami Gyanananda, who used to live in Dehradun. And in the early, early days of when Aryani and I were with Ananda and he was still in his body, we'd go visit him. Just a delightful, delightful saint. And he would talk about, uh, talk, especially referring to sleep. He said, whenever you wake up at night or the day, whatever it is, sometimes it's two o'clock, sometimes it's five o'clock, sometimes it's seven o'clock. He says, whenever your eyes open, that's when you should wake up because that's the exact amount of sleep that your body needed. And it came out of that sleep, but we of course would say, oh, it's only two o'clock, you know, <laughs> which is like the best part, like, oh, I can, you know, <laughs> go back to sleep. I can go back to sleep for a few more hours. But he was essentially talking about the natural intelligence that already exists in each of us. And it's an individual intelligence, just like we were talking about that individual unique consciousness that we all are so is that path and so is that intelligence in us and so we have to start tuning into those rhythms yet at the same time he's also talking about why he's saying it's not for here it's not for here it's not for this it's not for that he's also saying that you'll never achieve yoga by outwardly fixing your life because a lot of us get you know fanatical oh now i'm on this diet and this is how i eat and i count every little thing and of course, Krishna here is not talking about that not being right, but he's also saying that's not yoga. That's not going to bring you union. The way Paramahansa Yogananda put it, he says, you'll never find God through a pure stomach, only through a pure heart. And so it's helpful to recognize that there are certain realities that will help put me into harmony with that inner goal as well but I can't define myself based on these outer realities. And that's where Krishna wants to help focus our attention because very easily and far too often, we start to, you know, kind of identify our spirituality by that which we do or don't do. And usually they tend to be in certain extremes. However, there is one thing coming about the individual process. There is something uh, important to remember in this process and this is this lifetime after lifetime what we tend to do is we do live in these extremes and so for us individually and this is where again awareness of the self is so important is where do I need to swing so if I've gone too far in this direction if I want to get back to the center 
I'll have to first actually go a little beyond the center in this direction to first nullify the energy I have already generated. So if I was a glutton in my previous incarnation or even in this incarnation for many years, there is a good chance that for a while I'm going to have to go in the opposite direction but with the clear understanding of the fact that where I want to find myself is in the center. That's where people kind of forget. I don't know if we mention this, I'm sure somewhere in our classes this has come out, but uh, our guru would give this beautiful example of, of how religion also gets confused. <laughs> and he would talk about, you know, if the goal of all religions being self-realization is to arrive at the equator, of the earth you've got people who live in the north you know the northern hemisphere to them the saints will say go south and you've got people who live in the southern hemisphere to them the saints will say go north and then the people of the north and the south they meet at the equator and then they start kind of bickering amongst themselves and like no 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 my religion says you have to go north and my religion says you have to go south completely forgetting that the goal was neither north nor south the goal was the equator and so this helps us kind of relax a little bit even in our spiritual expressions not get too oh, i have to be i have to be detached so now i just have to go to the extreme of detachment which easily turns into indifference oh you know i have to watch exactly everything that i eat because my body i have to make it toxin free and then you get so consumed by what you are eating and every grain and what toxin is that working on that you forget that it was never about that. It was really about the cleansing that will allow my life force to flow freely, that I may offer my life force more fully to God. And so this is a very, very important statement. One of those kind of key moments in the Gita, which is important for all of us to reflect upon and individually tune into. Where am I on this spectrum? And if the goal of yoga is to come into that central path, for those of us who are not too far out in extremes, moderation is the way to go. This is also what Buddha preached. Just come into that very central space where neither pulls have enough energy to draw you away from your own center. And of course, if we are in one direction or the other, to recognize that if we have to, yeah, I have to watch what I'm eating, I have to be aware of how I sleep, I have to be aware of that I easily get attached, I easily go into distraction. So therefore, I do need to kind of go a little bit in the opposite direction. But recognizing that the goal is the equator, it's not the direction. And he continues on the similar vein in verse 17. One who is temperate in eating, recreation, working, sleeping and wakefulness attains yoga, which destroys all suffering. Again, little by little by little in every aspect of our lives, we begin to find that perfect balance because there's so much. Those who, uh, who get caught up in their eating habits, then it's somehow it becomes all about food. Those who get caught up about work and the success that they want, it becomes all about work. But we realize that our lives is neither about food, nor about work, nor about sleep, nor about wakefulness. But it's this amalgamation of all these aspects, each of them playing a vital role in our self-realization. And when we start to realize that, 
we start to balance them all out and see them all in relationship to each other and not as individual uh, you know truths and verities by themselves to be pursued when the chitta or feeling is completely calmed and centered inwardly in the self the yogi freed from every attachment and desire attains the state known as union with god now we've talked and heard again and again you have to free yourself from every desire every attachment and here again though krishna has mentioned this before reminds us that this isn't like oh this desire i'm going to have to push this desire away this attachment i'm going to have to work on this attachment and you know if we start that down that path it's going to take a long time while we fix each tiny little issue that uh, you know ends up being a lot of issues put together and so he goes to again to the very source which is the chitta when the chitta is completely calm and centered inwardly in the self naturally one is freed from all desires and attachment it doesn't even matter what that desire was what that attachment is now what is chitta we've talked about this from the perspective of the four aspects man buddhi ahankar chitta we talked about patanjali defining yoga as yoga's chitta vritti nirod often we think about the spiritual path and rightly so as the transcendence of the ego you know it's all about the ahankar so you've got man buddhi ahankar chitta but when patanjali is referring to yoga and here when krishna is referring to yoga they're both referring to chitta as the main kind of thing to be acted upon because that iness if you remember the example that our guru gave of the mirror being the mind reflecting a horse he, he that's the particular example he used and the mind as the mirror just reflects everything receives all that information it doesn't judge does not even know necessarily it's a receptacle for that information fed through our sensory perceptions then it takes the buddhi which is the intellect to process and analyze the information and say ah this is a horse then comes the ahamkar the ego the i that what it does is it then relates everything to itself so this is oh, no that's not just a horse that is my horse or it's not my horse or that horse is x you know feet away from me oh, so whatever it is it's all about the fact that there is a relationship to that object circumstance that reality to me and that's the ego's job always relating back to itself now yogananda said that even at this stage you're not fully caught in delusion because having a sense of identity especially when you understand that every in, every atom is endowed with individuality so every consciousness that we are we have a divine individuality and so the ego can either be that divine individuality just like the saints have just like krishna krishna had to say this is my body i am your charioteer i am going around i will help you so the you could krishna wasn't just like yogananda said we all saints have to have enough ego to even hold the atoms of our body together can you imagine that he says because if the moment we let go of that he says we'll just dissolve into infinite bliss we won't even be able to maintain our physical bodies and so for that that little bit of iness is appropriate in fact it's endowed already in our consciousness it is then the chitta 
that entangles and acts upon the hankar and the ego that creates all the issues that exist and the chitta is the biased feelings of the heart so in the same example of the horse the mirror reflects the intellect says this is a horse the ego says this is my horse the chitta says how happy i am because i have a horse or how unhappy i am because i don't have a horse or oh, i wish i had a horse that was better than my neighbor's horse and therefore my reaction to the world is now based on the fact in this case of the horse whether i'm going to be happy whether i'm going to be sad whether i consider this good whether i consider it bad and the chitta rests in our heart and this is where all our desires all our wants all our likes and dislikes this is the you know the core of our being in many ways this is where we live life through most intimately and this is where the chitta is it's constantly weighing interacting biasing prejudicing itself against the world and it draws a line in the sand and it says this is good and this is bad and this is where duality finally represents itself through our chitta so when krishna is talking about it's this chitta if we can relax it if we can calm the waves of chitta and the way patanjali puts it yoga's chitta vritti nirod the vritti we talked about those whirlpools those that they have this ability to churn and to keep us in that restlessness of its churning and the whirlpool has the ability to suck us into it you know i want to live a joyful life but i get sucked into disappointment i get sucked into unhappiness i'm getting sucked into anger nobody consciously says i want to be unhappy i want to be angry i want to be disappointed no but we get drawn into it there is a force a conscious actual force that draws us into those states and it's not a force that's imposed upon us it's a force we've generated through our chitta but by the very fact that i said this is good and this is bad oops so if you're going to want to experience the good duality dictates that you're going to have to experience the bad so we are setting ourselves up for both the successes and the failures the accomplishments and you know the inability to fulfill ourselves the joys and the sorrows so we're setting that process up and that's all based on this chitta and the chitta has different qualities it's lodged in in the entirety of our inner spine in the shishumna it clumps around our chakras and the particular quality through which we experience and relate to the world is you know those that are further downward pulling that are some that are still a little elevating but as long as the energy from a chitta is directed outwardly we remain entangled one way or the other so that divine i becomes the egoic i in the process and so that's what we're really working on that's why patanjali defined yoga as that neutralization of chitta and krishna here is defining it exactly in the same way when chitta is completely calmed and centered inwardly in the self which means now the energy that it if it generates any energy it generates it in and up and there's no more drain outward the yogi is naturally freed from every attachment and every desire and attains the state of unity with god a candle burns of candle flame burns steadily protected from the wind even so is the consciousness of that yogi 
who has subdued his chitta. Now you've got the candle flame and if there's, you know, you see the candle flame over here, the fan, just the little turbulence that the fan creates and you can just see the flame kind of going all over the place. And the moment the fan or any outward, you know, any whirlpool of energy, the storm of Maya stilled, the flame becomes perfect and still. And when the flame is perfect and still, it gives light equally all around, just like God. But when the flame is in agitated state, shadow and light, shadow and light, shadow and light keep playing throughout that process. And so the same way that if I want, you know, you've got those uh, old lanterns with those glass covers, you know, just to make sure that the flame stays steady, so that the light that it gives is steady. Similarly, we work in our meditations to steady the waves of our own restlessness that the chitta creates. And it creates it in the ida and the pingala. And then the ida and the pingala is our inner representation of duality for every up. There is going to be a down, then which then naturally outwardly becomes represented in our breath for every inhalation. There is an exhalation. And even in the beginning and the end of our lifetime, there is that first inhalation, inhalation as the baby cries when it's born. And then there's that final exhalation as the soul exits the body. And even that is dual. And so no matter what we do, duality will play itself until we get so deeply centered in ourselves. And this is where the chitta comes in. And the chitta is not going to just outwardly, oh, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to give in to anger. Those things are very helpful so that we don't strengthen the whirlpools of the chitta. And this is where in the beginning, it's like, okay, if, if, I, have a, if I have a vritti, that draws me into gluttony, draws me into greed, draws me into the necessity to fulfill myself sensually in this particular case through food, then I'm going to have to withdraw life force from that chitta so that I can, you know, neutralize it even on an outward level. And then inwardly, when I shoot that life force up to the spiritual eye, it washes that chitta away. It washes that vritti away completely like a whirlpool on the river. And that becomes the intention of every meditation that we sit for. Every meditation is doing that. And that's the encouragement we require because you may not receive great visions in your meditation. They may not even always make you as calm as you'd like to be. Sometimes our meditations are even restless. The mind's just not willing to settle. But even if a little bit, you're able to still the candle flame of your concentration, even if from the turbulence of the chitta, which is activating then your thought processes, if you can keep coming back to the central reality at the point between the eyebrows, some energy begins to flow and that energy naturally begins to shave off the life force pre-committed in these vrittis and in these whirlpools. And that's the power of meditation that none of us will know until we experience it daily and practice it enough to suddenly start seeing these outward experiences and conditions and habits and old patterns just start to completely disappear without even your conscious awareness. The state of complete inner tranquility, which is attained by yoga meditation, wherein the little self, which is the ego, perceives itself as the self and enjoys itself 
as the self. This is the same experience we were talking about, that state of nirvana, which is not a state of nothingness, which people tend to equate. And especially in the Buddhist tradition, it is nothingness. Swamiji says, you first enter into that state of nothingness and for a brief moment, there is in fact nothingness as the transition from the limited separate self into the infinite self takes place. And he says, and then it's immediately rushes in the waves of bliss. And this is what he's saying. The little ego perceives itself as the big self and then enjoys itself. This is where the joy becomes manifest as the infinite self. And that state in which bliss, transcendent above the senses and accepted as such by intuitive intelligence can never be expunged. You'll never lose it once you've experienced it. And this is even for our little states. Every little victory in your meditation stays with you and then supports you knowingly, unknowingly through hard moments, through turbulent moments. We have a, a friend, um, you know, they're a couple, they have a young daughter. And recently during this COVID uh, experience, um, he lost his job. And uh, we spoke to him just a couple of months ago and he was just sharing with us. He says, you know, I've lost my job. This should be such a hard moment for me and my family. He says, but we feel so calm, both me and my wife. We feel so just taken care of. Even he's like, I'm surprised. I, I want worry and fear to come into me so that I feel like I'm going to do something about it. He says, but it's just not coming. And that's the power that we're talking about. And it's not like this person is like some deep meditator who's spending hours in his sadhana. No, but enough to recognize that this is worth my time, that I'm going to give this, I'm going to feed my meditations because I know it's going to feed me back. And now it's sustaining him through a moment that for many of us could be an emotional wreck, not just for us, but for our entire family. Yet none of them are experiencing any of those so-called natural responses to a crisis. And that state which once attained is considered the treasure beyond all other treasures. In that state alone does the yogi become immune to grief even in the face of the greatest tragedy. Well, we told the example maybe a verse too soon, but Krishna sums it up beautifully here. Even in the face of the greatest tragedy, you're immune to grief. Now, for some of the, us, that's like, we're not even sure how to pick it up. And for some of us, we can say, yeah, I think I can manage that. But that's only because we've not faced our greatest tragedies yet. All great saints have faced innumerable tragedies. Tragedies that you and I would shudder at the mere even possibility of it descending upon us. And that's more than anything a real test of what our spiritual life means for us. Not the cessation. The cessation takes place inwardly with the chittas. But the storm of Maya outwardly continues to rage. 
but we're protected. Our flames become protected and they do not waver even for a moment. And that's the strength and that's the power. Also, especially now during the Navratris, that Divine Mother represents for us. That Shakti that is so... I mean, it can do absolutely anything. It can take any situation and it can overcome it a million times over. And that's what we're trying to kind of experience through our meditations, through our daily lives. Because if we are here, the way our Param Guru said, if you're on earth, <laughs> your journey has not yet ended. And for us to kind of hope and think, when am I going to just kind of fall into that bliss, which is literally what we want to do. We just want to kind of fall into it like we fall asleep, which is I don't want to work hard for it. But the battle still remains. And that is why even Krishna is not just telling Arjuna, Arjuna, don't worry, you know, I'll take care of you. You just, you do whatever you need to do. You don't have to fight. You don't have to worry about this. Mehuna, he's not saying that. He's there. Yet he's very clear, Arjuna, you're going to have to do this. You're not ready. You're not, you're, I can explain to you where I would like you to be, but you're not there yet. But I'll take you. But the journey will be through the battle, through life. It will not be circumventing life. And each of us have to accept that and not only accept that, but fully embrace it as a true yogi, as Krishna would expect of us. I think everyone would agree that today was a lot about moderation. And I would like to pick it up from that point. Yogananda says that don't practice too much extreme discipline until you have achieved some sort of realization, which is a beautiful way to say, be careful because if you go to the extremes, you can become fanatical. And that's something that sometimes we don't even realize in the name of self-discipline and you know austerity and tapasya, we impose within ourselves practices that we don't, first of all, we don't know how to handle them. We don't even understand how to go about it. Even when the results come, we are not spiritually mature to digest that experience and make a spiritual growth from it. So the spiritual path, first, we need to become comfortable enough to create a discipline that is realistic for us and that we can sustain. Moderation brings that sustainability that will help us go through even in moments of difficulty. So I would say, why not this week, we start to see our lives and how um, create a moderate and balanced um, daily lifestyle. And in order to do so, perhaps we want to start by how many hours I am sleeping. Uh, how much quantity of food I am eating and do I really need that much? Am I meditating twice a day? 
I'm also having a relaxing time throughout the day, a time for recreation, where the mind relaxes, where there is laughter in your heart, where, where you can really have that moment during the day where you feel like this is important too, to have fun and to relax in the process because as we keep saying again and again, the journey of the soul is very, very <laughs> long. And you know, just a couple of years on the path, meditating even 20 hours a day won't get us there. So it's going to be up to us. And I think bringing more balance in our lives uh, will help tremendously. And then bit by bit increasing, you know, that tapasya or that self-discipline or that, you know, keep increasing yourself and bringing out of your comfort zone. But first, make yourself fully grounded, fully stable on the, on the spiritual path and, and achieve that sense of, I'm really committed to this and I have created such a um, um, strong um, discipline in a way that I can handle, that I can keep going like this forever. And that's the feeling that Krishna wants for each one of us to start feeling that once I'm on the path, I need to make it um, realistic, approachable to me, enjoyable, uh, and of course, deepening bit by bit. So introspect a little bit uh, throughout you know, this week and see in which areas or if your life you are forgetting to practice a little bit more of this. Perhaps some, day, some days you have to eat a little bit more. Some days you need to rest a little bit more. Other times you may need to sleep less. So, so play with it and make sure above all there is balance and moderation even on the spiritual path, because we don't want to become, again, too fanatical, which there is a risk about that, and fanatism usually pushes everyone else outside, and true yoga is the unity and the welcoming of everything around us, including our own karma. <laughs>